Please find your way to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Remembering the qualifications for those who shepherd the church, who pastor it, we read in verse 9. That among character traits in verses 6 through 8, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Four, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's seek the Lord. We need you, Father, to help us discern the meaning of this passage, its application to our life as a church. We pray for any who know not Christ as Savior among us, who do not have that personal relationship of identity with Him. And I pray that you'd open their eyes to the light of the gospel to see the glory of your great name. We pray for those who know Christ as Savior, for those who are perhaps here week in and week out. May we feed upon the truth of your word. We pray that by your Spirit you would teach us what we are to discern and allow us to grow and make progress in our walk with you through this time together. We ask your blessing upon it in Christ's name. Amen. I ate lunch with a missionary recently. We were considering where to meet, and he said it made no difference to him whatsoever. I always say the same thing. It really doesn't matter. I'm happy eating virtually anywhere because I simply love food. But as we sat down at this local sandwich shop, I learned that his lack of concern was very different than mine. He explained that he did not care where we ate because he did not really enjoy eating. I had no category. (laughs) I didn't say anything to him, but I genuinely felt sorry for the poor chap. Not enjoy food? That's just sad. But what is positively tragic is when self-professed Christians show little hunger for the spiritual nourishment of God's revealed Word. I wonder if you come to the assembly today hungry to feed on sound doctrine. 
on accurate teaching of the genuine meaning of Holy Scripture that leads to godly living. I wonder if we come with that orientation. Does Eden Baptist Church crave the life-giving, life-changing nourishment of healthy doctrine? We certainly should, for the reigning Christ who saves us by His grace intends for us to gather in order to nourish our souls in this way, to feed on right instruction in Scripture week in and week out. It's paramount then that we learn to identify sound doctrine and that we also learn to value healthy teaching and its influence upon our lives. That we long for it, that we want it. Like I enjoy eating food like I think all of us do. That we would love to feed on the Word of God. And that is so vital for us to develop this capacity to identify and to value because healthy biblical teaching empowers godly living. And it empowers, it feeds the roots of our identity in Christ and His righteousness where unhealthy teaching, false doctrine, does not empower godly living. It provides nothing for it and it leads us to trust in our own righteousness not in Christ. So there's a lot that's at stake for us in this. It's familiar territory to us as a church, but there's very much that is at stake here. The Apostle Paul stresses this point to his gospel partner Titus, whom he exhorts to do battle in defense of true doctrine there on the island of Crete. And it's going to be quite a challenge. remembering here verse 1 of chapter 1, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, remember what the risen Christ is doing. He is drawing out a people for his name, he's assembling them together, and his focus is, remember those three things, the faith of God's elect, that we would have, that we would be a people of faith in God, that we would walk by faith, not by sight trusting him and secondly he's producing this in us a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness that we would feed on the knowledge of his word and that it would transform the way that we live that we'd be that kind of a people and thirdly a people with hope in eternal life we sang of that this morning the joy it was to just think we gather here as people who are not just focused here we're looking long and as we look forward We know where this journey will lead us. That's what the risen Christ is doing, verse 1. Now remember then, last week we looked at the fact that to this end, Jesus arranges the order of his local church. He is seeking to rightly order to help us grow in faith. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So remember, Christ's guidance with respect to order is not heavy-handed. It doesn't weigh us down with rules and regulations, but there is an order that he perceives to the local church, and that includes spiritual shepherds who will watch over the assembly and feed the flock of God, the Word of God. 
Now in verses 6 through 8, we saw the character qualifications for such individuals. Not just anyone who happens to be charismatic or wealthy or high status in the in the uh, community. It's not that. It's individuals of character. That is, going back to verse 1, it's people who are demonstrating this knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And that godliness then, verses 6 through 8, is to be evidenced in their life. And then in verse 9, a second idea, and that is that they must have capacities to teach the truth of God. I'd like you to just to notice here by way of theme and why I'm kind of drawing together maybe what's a strange breakup of verses here. But notice in verse 9 the phrase sound doctrine. So that they may get, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Now look down at verse 13. Speaking negatively of false teachers he's, and, and those who are heeding them. He says, rebuke them sharply. That is in the church. We'll get to that in a moment but that they may be what? Sound in the faith. There's that word sound again, or it could be translated healthy. That they would be healthy in the faith. And then go to chapter 2 and verse 1. And there you see it again. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. With healthy instruction in the revealed word of God. This is clearly the emphasis that Paul is drawing out here in these verses. So let's work through them. Considering again, as we did last week, first of all, the task of a faithful pastor. We see that in verse 9. Let's focus on it again here just to gain our uh, perspective in the text. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That is, he must hold firm to true doctrine. So he must serve the congregation as a trustworthy steward of God's trustworthy word. He must prove loyal to the word as taught. There again is a reference to submission to the apostolic teaching. So his value is not in proving novel, but in proving faithful, in being accurate to what the word of God teaches. I talked to a friend, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, speaking about a pastor uh, in a church somewhere, I don't know exactly where, but that he said that his goal in preaching was to bring out of Scripture ideas that the church had never heard before. That was kind of his operative goal of every sermon, was to say things that were novel. Nobody thought about. I'd suggest, even on the basis of just this phrase in Scripture, that's a bad idea. Now, we don't want to be so obvious that we put everybody to sleep, but on the other hand, the idea is not to be novel. It's to be faithful. This is the word that God has entrusted to his church. What we want to do is understand it accurately. He's to be loyal to that word. Why is a pastor to hold firm with devoted loyalty to God's word? Verse 9, you see the word, so that. Here's why so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So secondly, to instruct the church in sound doctrine. He's going to hold firmly to it so that he can teach the church, here is what God is saying, here's what the Word of God is saying. We just saw this, didn't we, in Acts 20. This is the Apostle Paul's legacy as he speaks to the Ephesian elders. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God 
and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't withhold any profitable instruction. I taught you publicly and privately from house to house. He's fulfilling this very calling of teaching the church the word of God. And so back to it here in Titus uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. Not shrinking from that, he's to teach that. But then we stop and ask, well then what is sound doctrine? And this is by no means exhaustive, but I think it gives us some idea of what the New Testament would indicate. What is sound doctrine? First of all, it displays faithfulness to the meaning of Scripture, both to the minutia of specific texts and to the overarching themes of the entire Bible. Now, please understand there's much flexibility here. But just a moment ago, I pointed you in verse 9 to the word, so that. He must be firm, hold firmly to the trustworthy word. What is the implication so that? Now just right there, I'm doing this with, I'm looking at the minutia. You don't need to do that. A pastor doesn't have to do that all the time. But when we look at specific phrases, we're hearing the minutia of true doctrine. We're seeing how the text is put together and understanding that text. But notice the second idea here, uh, and to the overarching themes of the entire Bible. It's not simply looking at specific phrases and getting down deep into the weeds, but it's reading everything from the whole. I was looking for some illustrative material here uh, for this sermon, and I went on my shelf to a book that I know is pure false doctrine. I know the author, he's a false teacher. I picked it off the shelf. I thought, I wonder if I'll find anything here. I turned to one page. And on that one page, he picked a phrase out of a passage of Scripture and twisted it to make it into what he wanted to say and it was, sounded very nice, very interesting, very encouraging, and it was poison. But where the failure was, wasn't in the minutiae, it was that he didn't read that phrase in light of the whole. He didn't have a sense of whole Bible doctrine that keeps you from making something out of a phrase like that and running with it into false teaching. Secondly, Sound doctrine teaches the whole counsel of God, avoiding no doctrine, theme, principle, or text because it proves troublesome or countercultural. This is one of the beauties of working through books in the preaching services of the church. We can't avoid the hard passages. Now, it's, it's appropriate for a pastor to say, I don't know what this means. In fact, sometimes we maybe should say that more often like I don't know for certain this is what I think and I, I we try to do that here so we have to know everything but it's that we're not avoiding things you're looking through the whole council that's sound teaching sound teaching also rejoices to see Jesus Christ as the controlling center and consummation of divine revelation it's there here again is a sense of the whole Bible and recognizing that it is pointing us ultimately to Christ, the living Word of God. 
Number four, it exposes and condemns sin and falsehood, pointing believers to spiritual health and maturity in union with Jesus Christ and applied to the context of their contemporary world. That is, this word has something to say to us where we live. It points us away from false teaching to Christ in our contemporary setting. Something like this is what's meant by sound doctrine. Now, thirdly, the task of a faithful pastor we see in the contrast there in verse 9, the contrast from that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, be building the church up in true teaching. Notice the next phrase, and also, counter, to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must correct those who peddle false doctrine. From the earliest days of the infant church, false teachers rose up to oppose God's word, and God providentially chose not to stop them, but to permit free will in exercise of sin to say things that are wrong. He calls then the pastors of the church to discern these things and to stand up against them, to resist them. In verses 10 through 16 now, Paul reminds Titus there's a lot of work to do in this area, and he provides us with a fairly clear picture of the false teachers that Titus is going to face there on the island of Crete. For, so he is to teach the word of God, verse 9, verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. You get the idea, Paul's rather serious here, don't you? I mean, this is, these are hard words. They're insubordinate. They don't obey Christ. They don't obey the Scriptures. They're running off saying their own things. They're empty talkers. They're a bunch of hot air. They're just, they're motor mouth. They can really keep a crowd and say things nicely, but what they're saying is not faithful teaching. They're deceivers. They fool other people with their teaching. This book that I talked about, pulled off, first page that I read, it's pure deception. But it sounds right. It's pulling off a Bible phrase, a Bible verse, and it's running with it in telling people what they want to hear. That's who these people are. They, they taught different things than we hear today, but there's their false teaching. And they were particularly of the circumcision party. That's a reference to Jewish teachers who claimed to follow Christ, but really espoused a works-based faith that just promoted themselves. So these false teachers were interesting. They were coherently, coherently logical. And it was also pure poison, what they were saying. So loyalty to God's word and able to dis- loyal to God's word and able to discern the error of false teaching, this faithful shepherd must defend the flock against such wolves. Verse 11, they must be silenced. So I'm telling you, Titus, you've got to silence them. How does he silence them? Not with a gun, nothing like that. It silence them with the truth. Silence them by teaching sound doctrine so that the church hears false teaching and says, no, that's ridiculous. That's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. Silence them, verse 11. And why? 
They're upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Don't feel sorry for them as you silence them. They're up to no good. They must be silenced because, for example, they disrupt the peace and unity of families in the pursuit of personal wealth. Now, I don't know what was going on in the island of Crete. I'm certain that Paul has specific examples But this kind of thing goes on in our day, and I could give you a string of illustrations. In fact, standing right back there in the lobby not very long ago, uh, a couple my age, a little older, came to me and said, we have found such encouragement and enlightenment from the teachings of a pastor named Joel Osteen. Have you ever heard of him? And I said, yes, I've heard of him. And they explained how their family was being splintered apart as the younger, their children, who apparently had more sense, were explaining to the parents, this guy's not teaching the truth of God's word. And it was dividing the family. I encouraged them to go back and hear hear their children out, be listening to what they're saying. It's it's, it's true today, And, and there are illustrations that go a lot worse where people begin to, t- to sell their homes and take their income and their, the inheritance of the children and turn it over to some false teacher, and it divides families. It's destructive stuff. It's not just people having a fine time coming up with ideas that are just not going to hurt anybody. False teaching hurts people. It divides families, Paul says, and they're doing it for shameful gain teaching what they ought not to teach so that they make money off of other people. What it does do, as they they teach these things, what it does do, it does not do, is lead to godly living. What it does do is it connects to the godless culture around it makes sense within the context of a godless world. So you see that in their context, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. This Cretan was a Greek, so-called Greek prophet named Epimenides, a citizen of the city of Gnosis on Crete, He wrote this 600 years before. Just think about that. This this way of life is very entrenched. 600 years ago, he says, this is who these people are. And you can find extant documents today of ancient historians and philosophers who would describe Cretan culture as filled with people given to lying, cheating, stealing, greed, and gluttony. So, says the Apostle Paul, this testimony is true. I don't even need to just speak as a Christian. I just quote their own prophet from 600 years ago. This is true, verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I I think the idea here, they, is a rebuke to the Christians in the churches on Crete who are listening to these false teachers. Now, could be a false teacher in a church, certainly too, but the point is to rebuke, to stand up to it, to speak against it, that they may be sound in the faith, that they would have healthy knowledge of Scripture. 
Now, the opposite of being sound in the faith is now described in verses 14 to 16, and it provides us a glimpse of the kind of false doctrine that Titus had encountered and would continue to face there on the island. So teach them to be sound in faith. Here's the opposite. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Jewish myths. These are springboarding off of Old Testament texts. These teachers would concoct false ideas that sounded right in the ears of people from Crete. They'd come up with fanciful stories and empty talk that failed to encourage holiness in the lives of hearers. Here's how, you, here's how we sniff out false doctrine. If it's not real clear on what's being said, if it's right or wrong, what it does is it gets people riled up. It gets them excited about some new idea, some new truth. It was juicy information that tickled the ears. It was the inside track on enlightened ideas. Do you see this like I do? Do you get this idea? And it just stirs up and divides and riles and interests. And, oh yeah, there's always the money stream that follows. But you know what these foolish musings do not do? They don't do anything to help people follow Christ. They do nothing to transform the heart. They get us all interested looking at these things, but they're not changing the way we live. Remember verse 1? A knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This would be a continual emphasis of this book. Verse 15, now he speaks proverbially, prophetically so just understand in the background here they're they're pressing these ritualistic ways of pleasing god by your good works and he says now here's the deal verse 15 to the pure all things are pure but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. These Jewish teachers claim that ascetic good works and ritualistic practices could earn you a standing before God. Paul says, no, in union with Jesus Christ, there's no need for ritual purity. On the, by following the Mosaic law or whatever ritualistic add-ons these false teachers might suggest. Christian, you are united to Christ and he is your righteousness. There is no other path. There is no other way. No one's going to enlighten you. It's in your relationship with Christ that you have a standing of righteousness. So these false teachers tell you how to earn God's favor. You have God's favor now. If you've come to saving faith in him, trusting in his death to pay the penalty of sin, trusting in his resurrection to provide eternal life you have that standing as you are not because you deserve it but by his grace by his kindness to you in christ and so it boils down to this that there are those who look at this as religious ritual but it's relationship it's not the things you can do the enlightened ideas that you come up with and the ritualistic practices that earn god's favor it's a relationship to god through jesus christ who reconciles you to him that's where it's at 
So Paul is really using a play on words here to say, ironically, the emphasis of these false teachers on earning spiritual purity has left them unclean. So unclean that the very way they think is corrupted and their consciences are defiled and unable to point them in the right direction. They're blind guides of the blind. So here's the final devastating word on them. And again, you notice that Paul does not pull punches here. They profess, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. I take that to mean they profess to know God through Christ, but actually they're denying him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They're self-deceived. They think they know God in a saving way. They don't. In truth, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. False doctrine renders people unfit for good works. It corrupts the lives of all who fall into it. And false doctrine, in the end, will lead people to hell. It will grease the slide. It will make them feel like they are right with God when they're not. So Paul appeals to Titus as well as to the elders that Titus will appoint over the churches and he says, expose this garbage. It's poison. Help people see that it's poison. And so that leads then to the calling of Titus in chapter 2. We could certainly and will connect it next week to what follows in chapter 2, but we can see how it connects to what precedes in chapter 1. And that is the calling of Titus is, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice that phrase, but as for you. How do you read that? There's a direct contrast. This is how the false teachers live, but you're going to do differently. By God's grace. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. They what do they do? How do they spend their days? These false teachers, what they are about is they twist the scriptures, they teach their own ideas, they come up with these myths and falsehoods and novelties, they command their followers to pursue ritualistic practices to please God. And the outcome is controversies. Divided homes, people who've lost a lot of money, they with much healthier bank accounts now, these false teachers, telling people what they want to hear, giving people false assurance based not on a relationship with Christ, but on their own merits, following the dictates of the teacher. That's their world. That's how they live The outcome, verse 16, is that they are unfit for any good work. So they fail to fit others for any good work. That is, they're not teaching what is going to lead to godliness. But Titus, that's not you. In contrast to them, to one, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that now will follow, verses 2 and following, with some practical instructions of what that godly living looks like in the lives of God's people that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior, verse 10. So pastors who honor the vision of Christ teach God's Word accurately 
in a way that encourages Christ's followers to live a righteous life, the life Jesus saved them to live. We'll make more of this later, Lord willing, but notice chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice what that gospel does, that grace of God does, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Back to 1-1, the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Fairbairn writes, Christianity is primarily indeed a doctrine, but only that it may be in the true sense a life. Let me say that again. Christianity is primarily indeed a doctrine, but only that it may be in the true sense a life. The two can never be kept apart. The doctrine and the life, they can never be kept apart from each other in the public teaching of the church without imminent peril to both. And how we see this in so many false teachers. The doctrine gets off and eventually the wickedness behind the scenes comes out into the public. Where the doctrine is off, the humility of the believer is lost. The call to holiness is lost. And it generally shows itself eventually in the false teacher's life in greed and in sensuality. Stand up against this, says Paul. You must. Now, you're, you're operating, Titus, in a decadent culture. It's filled with wickedness. But Jesus Christ lives and reigns and is calling out a people for his name. He is purifying them and leading them to Christ's likeness. Stand up to the false teaching. Preach the true doctrine. A few words of application here let's just consider in light of this text just if i can speak to our elders here as we're seeking to honor this order that christ has laid out for his church we need to ask as shepherds of the church do we hold firmly to god's trustworthy word is that true of us are we tenaciously loyal to what scripture teaches and is that loyalty demonstrated even by our willingness to adjust what we've always thought Not under pressure from the world, not under the pressure of public opinion, but under the pressure of the text itself. Are we willing to rethink and refine and perhaps in some ways put down deeper roots in what we believe because our loyalty is to the Scriptures? Are we willing to pay the price of long hours of study? in humble dependence on the Holy Spirit as we prepare to teach God's people His Holy Word. To our Bible teachers, those who teach our children the Scriptures, even from the youngest ages, and uh, those who teach adults in varying settings, settings with small studies, settings with larger groups, men and women, men and women separately, all of you who teach the Bible, healthy doctrine is a key ingredient in the vibrancy of this local church. It is utterly essential. You are an important contributor to that vibrancy, or you could contribute to its demise. 
I implore you for the glory of our Savior, do not cut corners. Read. Learn. Ask questions. Grow as a teacher in skill and independence on the Holy Spirit. Learn as a teacher of God's Word, even to the youngest of children, learn how the Bible is knit together through the eras of salvation history. How Old Testament points to Christ. How the New Testament emphasizes the believer's new identity and union with Christ. Understand how sanctification works and be able to flesh it out in the lives of your students in teaching. Remember, the goal of your teaching is not to pack heads with facts about the Bible. It's certainly not to prove novel. But it's to inspire your students to live as Jesus saved us to live. That we have been redeemed for this purpose. Live it out. And Eden Baptist Church, this is true of all of us. We should all be growing in this way. Are you nurturing a hunger for the wisdom, the conviction, the encouragement of God's Word? Do you welcome it to be pushed, to be challenged, to be convicted by what God has said? We also need to step up to contribute to all of this with a reasonable but high standard for our pastors and teachers. Not to settle wrongly for those that would teach false doctrine or just not be prepared to teach the church. Be charitable. Be gracious. But do not settle for mediocre instruction. When we elect as a church shepherds in the assembly, discern carefully, is this person able to feed us the true word of God? They don't have to be a great teacher. They don't have to be charismatic. But will this person be faithful to the truth? That's on us as a church to some degree. As we critique teachers, again, being charitable and gracious and understanding. We're just human beings and we fail and we make mistakes doctrinally. But to say as a church, this is important. And just for a moment to say also be extremely cautious of TV preachers, of radio personalities, and online stuff. In fact, be very cautious of anybody whose life you don't actually know. Do you see how Paul talked to the Ephesian elders? What we looked at in Acts chapter 20, you saw my life. You saw how I lived among you. I, my life wasn't some secret live behind closed doors, doing my own thing, collecting your money and living how I choose. You saw the way I lived. How do we identify sound doctrine on the airwaves or online? How do we identify that? Would you not say, am I really stretching far here? in light of this passage, would you not say in light of this text that it makes sense for you to talk to your pastors? I mean, right? Isn't that why they're here? <laughs> to work against false doctrine? So you don't just go to some site and drink it in and start to read them through the grid of this online source that you really don't know who these people are or if they're telling the truth. Talk to your pastors. Discuss that. 
This beautiful woman came up to me after the first service and gave me the four radio TV preachers she's listening to and says, what do you think? That's great. And we could have a good conversation about it. But do that kind of thing. It's remarkable how many Bible-believing Christians will sit for years under faithful Bible teaching, then decide some half-baked website suddenly is the most reliable source to identify false teachers and false teaching. Be very aware of that. They're members of a church. They have pastors whose lives they can observe, whose love is real, who honor God's word, who pour out their daily efforts to provide spiritual food for the flock. But then the pastor doesn't quite line up with this self-proclaimed discerner of spirits from who knows where, mostly clueless, some site that they stumbled on, and the pastor's dismissed as the undiscerning compromiser. Now, pastors can be wrong. They can embrace false doctrine, understanding all of that. But so often, these online doctrinal watchdog sites are nearly as poisonous as the false teachers that they purport to expose. Often, they do not understand theological levels of importance. And they seem more interested in how many readers they can rile up and get on their side than they are to demonstrate the accuracy of their claims. They are whistleblowers who make a lot of noise, trash a lot of names, excite a lot of people, and offer very little by way of true doctrine, and nothing in the interest of bringing you any closer to Jesus Christ. So all I'm saying is exercise this extreme caution. By the way, I'm not talking to anybody that I know of. It's, it's, it's not like I'm aiming at somebody here. This is just a problem churches are dealing with in our day. Exercise extreme caution. And remember that although your pastors are not theological geniuses, they do love you. They do love the Word of God. And the Savior of the church put you in this assembly. Talk to them. Now, in times, there are people who come to believe that we teach some false doctrine, some bad ideas, or at least places where they differ so significantly they think they cannot walk with us any longer. We bless them. But we particularly bless them when we can sit down and have a conversation about what we believe and what the Scriptures teach. Not just tagging into some online person over here, this new church that you found, you have no idea what you're getting into, and suddenly it's all the rage. Be careful. Sound doctrine matters, is the point. And the exposure of false doctrine matters in a church. I think we have a long heritage here as a church of being gracious of not being mean-spirited, not trying to stir up and rile up all kinds of anxiety that's unnecessary. But when someone crosses the truth of God's Word, we must have as a church a backbone to say, no, this must be resisted. And it must be resisted because it's like feeding poison in the food to the sheep. It's going to destroy us if we don't stand up to it. So may the Savior find us as a church craving the pure milk of God's holy word and thereby growing up 
into Christ as we encourage and exhort one another in the truth. We should not walk from this place with these thoughts in pride. We should walk in humility. We should recognize that not one of us always knows all we should about doctrine. We struggle to know what's most important, what's a hill to die on, and what's not. But having said that, may we ever be, by the grace of God, a church that says God's truth matters. His truth matters. It is that which feeds our soul. We must be careful that we're not ingesting poison. And we must be willing to speak against those who are feeding exactly that to God's people. May he help us. Father, we praise you for your grace to us in the way that you've enabled us to pursue true doctrine, knowing that we have much to learn, knowing that we must continue to grow in sanctification. We thank you for the heritage of this assembly and the privilege that you've given us together to serve your cause and to honor your truth. We pray for anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, and I pray that they would embrace the true doctrine that we are saved by grace alone as a gift from the Savior to us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but only according to your mercy. Draw to that light, to that truth, anyone who knows not Christ as Savior among us, we pray according to your will. It's in the name of Christ that we ask it. Amen.